When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. Much as you try to bury it, the truth is out there. Greater than your lies, the truth wants to be known. You will know it. It'll come to you as it's come to me. As Agent Mulder explained on the X-Files, the truth is out there. Space aliens are probably not responsible, probably. But after the downing of that Chinese spy balloon, unidentified flying objects were shot down over the weekend by the U.S. military. So what were they? Also tonight, new information on the Georgia investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Portions of the grand jury report will soon become public as the Fulton County DA considers criminal charges. Plus, white officials in Mississippi approve a bill to set up a separate white appointed court system for the people of Jackson, which just happens to be 80 percent black. It's tonight's dispatch from our state of disunion. But we begin tonight on this 13th day of Black History Month with the legend of John Henry. Now, some of you may know him more as a folk hero, a legend you can find in everything from cartoons to ballads, plays, and children's books. An incredible story of man versus machine. According to legend, Henry was enormous, this strapping railroad worker who raced a steam-powered drill to build a railroad tunnel through, through a mountain. He beat the machine, and then he died, nobly, of exhaustion. That is how I learned it in school the heroic black man swinging his hammer on the railroad line. But John Henry was actually a real person. That is the conclusion of historian Scott Reynolds Nelson, who wrote a book about him. During the late 19th century, Henry did do dangerous work, blasting tunnels for the new Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. Back then, it was indeed done by hand, using a hand drill and hammer. The part about him battling a machine was also quite real, just not in the way that you think. Reynolds discovered documentation of a 19-year-old Black American man by that name in previously unexplored records of the University, I mean, of the Virginia Penitentiary, which helps explain why Henry was forced to do this work in the first place. Railroad work was escalating after the end of the Civil War. The Southern landscape was devastated by the war, and four million African Americans were now free. But the South, as well as the entire nation, had a big problem, finding a replacement for the huge free labor force called slavery. In short, lots of industries needed cheap labor for the tough jobs, the inhumane, dangerous work of physically building American industry. The 13th Amendment may have freed black people from bondage, but it also provided a loophole. Slavery and involuntary servitude were banished except for those committing, who had been convicted of committing a crime. Enter convict labor, where imprisoned Americans could literally be leased to industries who needed workers. The prison convict leasing system of involuntary servitude filled the labor supply shortage in the Southern plantations, 
and in growing businesses like the railroad monopolies who were connecting the nation east to west. It became a huge industry, which relied on incarcerating as many black people as possible to essentially re-enslave them. I mean, you could get arrested for anything, vagrancy, speaking too loudly in front of white women, true story, or even for just being unemployed. Among other work, prisoners were tasked with the deadly work of railroad construction. Now, the historian that I mentioned, Scott Reynolds Nelson, says that John Henry was one of those men. The New York Times review of his book details how Henry was from New Jersey, a Union soldier. In 1866, he was arrested for allegedly stealing from a grocery store and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was sent to the Virginia State Penitentiary, where the warden, desperate to raise revenue, had begun leasing prisoners to the railroad for 25 cents a day. Nelson also says that John Henry did not die of exhaustion, as folklore suggests. More likely, he died of silicosis, a fatal lung disease that took the lives of many of the workers who were forced to inhale crystalline dust from the rocks as they cut tunnels through those mountains. Like many figures in black history, John Henry's story has been transformed over time into feel-good folklore rather than an emblem of black oppression and corporate greed. And the ways in which slavery by another name persisted long after the Civil War. For example, ballads, books, and statues like this one in Talcott, West Virginia, depict John Henry as large and muscular, a Paul Bunyan type. But the real guy was described as a small man, perfectly sized for tunnel work. And the machine that he battled, the steam drill, took his life with chemicals, not by noble exhaustion, and did the same to many of the black laborers who were forced to hand drill holes deep into solid rock in order to set explosives to cut through those mountains. Their inhalation of dust and chemicals, the exposure to disease, that gets left out of the heroic ballads. We don't learn about the Chinese migrants who laid the tracks of the Transcontinental Railroad either. But we do know about the railroad tycoons who emerged in the Gilded Age. Theodore Roosevelt sought to end business monopolies like theirs, going after a railroad holding company that threatened to monopolize rail traffic across the western United States. But then Ronald Reagan undid much of that, and Donald Trump made it even worse. Fast forward to today, where an environmental disaster is currently unfolding in the town of East Palestine, Ohio. On February 3rd, about 50 train cars, including several carrying hazardous materials, derailed and later burst into flames, forcing almost half the town to evacuate. Now, fortunately, no one was killed, but to prevent an explosion, officials conducted a controlled release of toxic chemicals, sending a massive dark cloud of toxic fumes billowing across the small town. The Environmental Protection Agency said the main chemicals included vinyl chloride, a human carcinogen, and phosgene, a highly toxic gas that was used as a weapon in World War I. Nevertheless, just days after this toxic plume engulfed the area, officials told the residents of East Palestine that it was safe to return. But one week later, some are still not convinced. And honestly, why should they be? Residents have told reporters that they are experiencing headaches and nausea, smelling a pungent odor described as a mixture of nail polish remover and burning tires. Some say their eyes are burning. People are finding dead fish in the waterways. 
And today, a local NBC News affiliate there, WLWT, is reporting low levels of dangerous chemicals detected in the Ohio River downstream from this incident. The NTSB is still investigating the exact reason for the derailment, but they say it was likely caused by mechanical issues on one of the rail car axles. And while that investigation is taking place, there is renewed scrutiny on some of the deregulation that has left the industry vulnerable to these kinds of disasters, including the Trump administration's reversal of an Obama-era rule that required braking system upgrades for high-hazard trains hauling flammable liquids, and a rule created in 2020 allowing liquefied national gas to be shipped by rail with no additional safety regulations. Trains can run 100 or more tank cars filled with 30,000 gallons of these substances per the Trump administration. Now, just to put that in perspective, just 22 train tank cars filled with liquid natural gas hold the same amount of energy as the Hiroshima bomb. Some experts are sounding the alarm, urging the Biden administration to undo these policies before it is too late. The secretary for the Railroad Workers United puts it bluntly. Telling The Guardian, the Ohio wreck is the tip of the iceberg and a red flag saying if something is not done, then it's going to get worse and the next derailment could be cataclysmic. Joining me now is Mustafa Santiago Ali, executive vice president of the National Wildlife Federation and a former senior advisor at the the Environmental Protection Agency. And NBC News correspondent Ron Allen, who's been covering this major story unfolding in Ohio. Ron, my friend, I want to go to you first. And it's good to see you uh, even under these circumstances. But please describe for me what folks in Palestine, Ohio, are telling you they are experiencing, feeling, seeing uh, in their town after this explosion. I think there's a significant amount of fear and uncertainty, Joy, and that's fueling some of these reports that uh, of people feeling ill effects because of smoke and, and the water, what they're, they're tasting, what they're feeling. Not to say that they're hallucinating, but, but I think that there's a lot of concern about the long-term impacts of this massive fire and, and plume of smoke. I mean, to see this, it was extraordinarily dramatic. It was a, just a huge thing to happen in a small little town of some 5,000 people. Um, they opened schools today, so that happened. We just spoke to the EPA in Ohio about all this. They continue to say that uh, they believe that the water, the groundwater, the drinking water in that community is safe, and the federal EPA is monitoring the air throughout the past week. Every environmental briefing has said that they are not finding levels of anything dangerous that's, that's a concern. Um, of course, the residents are not sure. They want to see this situation play out for some time. Uh, because, again, if you look at the wreckage, it's just a, such a stunning thing. Remember, this happened at 9 o'clock on a Friday night. People were just rousted from their homes. There was this huge, loud explosion. And now, a week later, they're back in their homes. The evacuation order was lifted. The governors of Pennsylvania and Ohio, it's in the corner there in that border area, said things were safe. But a lot of residents just are not so yeah. sure. Yeah. It sounds like what was said about Flint <laughs> when they said, oh, no, you can drink the water again in Flint. And then it turned out, nope. Uh, real quick, before I, I go to bring Mustafa in, Ron, you, you rode around that town. You talked to people. Did this strike you as an affluent, a wealthy town? No, it was a very rural town, I thought. Um, very few 
very, very rural town and uh, again, about 5,000 people. Um, yeah. a, a lot of farmland, too, which is another big concern. Um, a lot of um, waterways and so forth. This is not urban in any by any stretch of the imagination. Very small downtown. Very small fire department, which um, uh, apparently used all the, everything they had to try and fight this fire. And a lot of their equipment now is not in use anymore. So they're looking for more yeah. firefighting equipment in, in the meantime. So it's taken a big toll. And there are now, of course, uh, many uh, class action lawsuits being filed by residents mm. who, among other things, want medical monitoring and screening to happen. And, and they should get it. You know, uh, Mustafa, it doesn't surprise me that this is not an affluent town, that it's a rural town, because, you know, that is where um, the biggest risk lies. And this controlled, you know, explosion to try to prevent an even worse, I guess, catastrophe. I mean, these are some of the chemicals that were released into the air between the actual derailment and what was done after. Vinyl chloride, butyl acrylate, ethylene glycol monobutyl ether, uh, ethyl NX, ethyl exyl acrylate, and isobutylene. I don't know what any of that is, but it doesn't sound like anything that I would want to breathe or that I would want my kids to breathe. How do we end up in a situation like this where a, in, in 20, in the year of our Lord 2023, we have a train derailment, a train filled with chemicals going through rural America, and it leaves this kind of devastation. Well, you know, Joy, we continue to, to create these sacrifice zones across our country. Some folks don't actually realize that we've got 160,000 miles of track that's out there. We had 1,700 derailments uh, in the last five years. And if you look at where many of those train tracks run, they run in lower wealth white communities. They run through farmland. They run through black and brown communities. So we have to pay particular attention to the sets of needs that exist there. We've got to make sure that we're also taking care of the infrastructure that has to be in place because these trains, in many instances, are carrying these uh, toxic chemical bombs, if you will, when you have these types of derailments and then if there are the explosions that are in place. And most folks need to also understand that those chemicals that you uh, laid out for everyone, a number of those are cancer-causing chemicals. So if you breathe, the average person breathes 20,000 times a day and you happen to breathe in some of these chemicals, uh, then you are you know, exposing yourself to the possibility and the risk of having cancer or liver or kidney disease or a number of other diseases that are a part of this. But it all goes back to us making sure that we are protecting our most vulnerable communities and the waterways where some of those chemicals are going to go also actually lead to places like the Ohio River, which is one of the dirtiest yeah. rivers that we already have. And, you know, um, during the Trump administration, they they rolled back. We don't know that breaks were an issue here, but they rolled back this Obama era rule that required these monopolistic train organizations, they're still a monopoly, they're back to being a monopoly, to put in brand new pneumatic brakes. That was rolled back under Trump. Um, should the Biden administration look at putting this back in? I mean, these trains carry toxic chemicals. About 4.5 tons of toxic chemicals are shipped by rail every year. An average of 12,000 rail cars carrying hazardous material pass through cities and towns every single day, according to the Department of Transportation. The Pittsburgh region alone has seen eight train derailments over the last five years. Should this, should the rules be, be strengthened again? I mean, I know their lobbies, the, the railroad companies' lobbies, spend a lot of money to get deregulated. That deregulation doesn't seem to be working out for folks in these rural communities, Mustafa. Not at all. We've got to make sure that we're enhancing the safety protocols that are necessary to keep both the folks who are working there on the train safe and then all these communities as well. So the Biden administration most definitely needs to tighten these things up. 
Pete Buttigieg, give us a call. We would love to have you come on and talk about this and whether or not the administration is considering retightening these rules back to the Obama era, uh, because this is terrifying. Um, Mustafa Santiago Ali, NBC's Ron Allen. Thank you both, my friends. I appreciate you. Uh, up next on the readout, mounting demands for answers as North America grapples with a series of mysterious objects shot down over U.S. and Canadian territory. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. What is true, uh, and I'm, I'm actually being serious here, is, is that uh, there are, uh, there's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. After the events of the past few days, people are asking the Biden administration the same question. Luckily, the truth is out there and we need to know what it is that's flying through our skies. According to the White House press secretary, no, Mars is not on the verge of an attack, however. There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. She was forced to state that on the record after yet another unidentified flying object was shot down over Lake Huron on Sunday. It was the fourth object downed in eight days, which Pentagon officials believe has no peacetime precedent. The Pentagon has been on heightened alert since a spy balloon from China emerged over U.S. airspace in late January. Speculation about unidentified flying objects or unidentified aerial phenomena, as they're called today, was fueled when Pentagon officials said the objects posed no security threat, but added that so little was known about them that Pentagon officials were ruling nothing out. Not even UFOs. <laughs> These sightings have increased since the Biden administration uncovered a vast Chinese surveillance program run by China's People's Liberation Army. Officials told the Washington Post that China's surveillance has collected information on military assets in countries and areas of emerging strategic interest to China, including Japan, India, Vietnam, Taiwan, and the Philippines. White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby walked reporters through some key facts regarding the three new objects, which the U.S. has been unable to access because of weather conditions. Now, he emphasized there could be completely benign and totally explainable reasons for why these objects are flying up there. Such as for research purposes from corporate entities or academic institutions. He also explained why we're hearing more about these objects. One of the reasons that we think we're seeing more is because we're looking for more. They have modified the filters and the gains, as we call it, uh, of, the, of the, the radar capabilities to look more discreetly at high altitude, small radar cross-section, and low-speed objects. 
And so if you do that, um, anybody that's operated a radar will know you can set you can set the parameters. And if you set the parameters in such a way that to look for a certain something, it's more likely that you're going to find a certain something. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor and MSNBC political contributor. Ben, I'm just going to tell you, when people hear unidentified flying objects, they can call it unidentified aerial phenomena, whatever, all people think is Roswell. I'm going to put this photo up because it, it, it's it's not just the Roswell. Here it is. This is the, the weather balloon explanation for the Roswell UFOs in the 1940s. That was Je- Jesse Marcel, head intelligence officer who initially investigated and recovered some of the materials, put holding up this weather balloon. And I think because we live in a... The opposite of that era, where no one trusts the government, <laughs> where not no one, but lots of people have deep mistrust of the government. And when we're so disunited, you know, when you have Marjorie Green saying people are scared, upset, and are believing <laughs> crazy things being said on the Internet about the three things being shot down. Really, Marjorie? People are believing crazy things that are being said on the Internet? You're saying that, Miss Jewish Space Lasers? But anyways, that's the environment. How do you think the administration has responded given that environment? Well, that, that's one of the more self-aware things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said. Uh, look, I, I think this is a difficult position they're in. But, Joy, if we're honest with ourselves, if we step back, I just don't think in talking to people in the administration and looking at what they're putting out, that there's any way that these three things would have been shot down had there not been the original Chinese spy balloon. I yeah. think John Kirby's explanation makes common sense, which is after the hubaloo over that balloon and all the backlash, they decided, hey, we have to start looking more carefully for balloon surveillance. When you do that, you find there's a lot of stuff in what is a vast swath of airspace. uh, And they've moved from some tolerance of that to kind of a zero tolerance for balloons that we aren't familiar with up there. And so they're shooting this stuff down. I think they have a real challenge, though, in that they do need to provide some explanations as soon as they can uh, about what exactly they shot down, provide that information to Congress and American people. That's going to take time if it's going to take them some time to recover this stuff in water and difficult weather in the cold of winter. Yeah, some of this stuff is out over Alaska and places where you actually have to physically get there. It's not like you can just go there and get it if it's in the ocean or it's, you know, somewhere on a tundra. It's not that easy to get. But let let me let let you listen to uh, um, some Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, who Joe Biden has made a really big show of trying to friend him up. Uh, But this is how he is treating uh, all of this. This is Mitch McConnell. The administration has still not been able to divulge any meaningful information about what was shot down. What in the world is going on? We're not hearing anything, uh, which just shows you that the administration really doesn't have any idea what, what they're doing here. This is a time to hear from the president. And if he doesn't know something, we're still trying to figure something out, then tell us. I mean, isn't President Biden damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. I mean, they, they in a way, are they victims of sort of, like you said, the overdisclosure? Because these spy programs have been operating for quite a long time, apparently. They operated during the Trump administration. But it's Biden that is disclosing, look, there are these programs. We're disclosing it. And then they're getting punished for it because of the politics. That's right. And he was damned if he doesn't when it took him a couple of days to shoot down that Chinese spy balloon until it was safely out of our uh, overland. Um, now he's clearly decided to take a more aggressive posture. I think the fair criticism or at least the fair request of the administration is what is the criteria under which you're going to now shoot down balloons? Because the reality is there's thousands of balloons up there and even many more drones and things of that nature that are engaged in scientific research, weather balloons, you know, corporate mapping, all this kind of stuff. Presumably, 
Most people that have something in the air have to file some kind of flight plan. And so the stuff that they're finding that doesn't match anything on their records, it doesn't have a flight plan, maybe that's what they're taking out. But I think that what they do owe is an explanation about when are we going to shoot something out of the air? Um, and better yeah. to have all that information together in one place. I've been in government. When you're moving into a new protocol, you got to get everybody around the table, and that's the military and the FAA and all these other organizations, and say, what are the protocols under which we're going to decide to shoot something down? And then how do we explain that? And I bet you that they're putting that together right now. And it's better to have all that information together rather than going piecemeal. So it may be a little uncomfortable here for a few days, but I think that yeah. they owe it to people to say, here is our protocol going forward. Well, some of this stuff is not shaped like balloons. I think that's what scares people. Um, and, you know, I think I have two fears. One is that they shoot something down and then it, it causes some sort of international incident that could be dangerous. It's some Russian thing or it's something from, you know, a hostile power that's even, more, you know, hostile, that doesn't have like an economic deep relationship with us like China. And then the other thing that, you know, it really is some woo out there. And then the question is, you know, how many of Trump's opponents on the other side side with the aliens? I'm just kidding. But your thoughts on the threats to shooting something down that gets us in some conflict? Well, the reality is if it's over our airspace and they've only acted when it's in our airspace, then it's illegal. It's a criminal act for somebody to send something into our airspace. So I think even the Chinese, even hostile powers kind of know it's fair game. Yeah. If we catch them in our airspace, we can take that down. If it's yeah. the aliens, Joy, we got a bigger issue about whether we want to make first contact in that way. Um, but you know what? I think that we'll forget uh, how this all started if it turns out that this is coming from a distant universe. Because if they've observed, if they've observed how we roll on this planet at all, they're not going to come to help. They're going to come to be like, "Oh, this needs to be gotten rid of." So y'all, we better band together because they're not going to be for us. Because <laughs> they're going to be like, "These people are exactly nuts. Right. Let's get rid of this. This these creatures are bad." Ben Rose, thank you very much. Much appreciated. But I think Marjorie would side with them. Just saying. Still ahead. Counting down to the release of at least portions of the report from the from the election grand jury investigation in Georgia. That's next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Donald Trump continues to spread false claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. And to this day, he remains free from any prosecution for his interference in that election. More than two years later, there remains a lingering question of whether he will ever face charges in the federal or state cases against him. Today, a Georgia judge ruled that the public may soon get at least a hint of an answer to that question in the Fulton County investigation of Trump's actions. Judge Robert McBurney ordered that three sections of the special grand jury report be made public later this week, including the introduction, the conclusion, and Section 8, in which jurors expressed concern that some witnesses may have lied under oath. 
In his ruling, the judge noted that the report includes a roster of who should or should not be indicted and for what. But those parts remain sealed for now, at least until Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis makes any charging decisions. Willis told the judge last month that those decisions were quite imminent. Quote imminent. Sorry. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst, and Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and also an MSNBC political analyst. And Glenn, I do want to start with you. Um, imminent uh, potential charges. A judge, Judge McBurney, who said that disclosing these three buckets of information was of great public, compelling public interest. Um, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Wills replied, saying she believes his order is legally sound and consistent with her request. No plans to appeal. What is the significance of releasing this info, in your view? You know, Judge McBurney had to balance some competing interests. There is a searing, you know, public interest in what's going on in this Georgia state criminal investigation regarding Donald Trump's um, election crimes. Um, but the judge had to balance the release of that information against the impact it might have on Fonnie Willis's ongoing investigation. And, you know, when you read this eight page ruling from Judge McBurney, I think he struck a sensible balance here. And I have to tell you, Joy, I was most excited when I read about how Section 8, which will be disclosed, has information about how the grand jurors believed some of the witnesses that Fonnie Willis had to compel to testify. We don't know who, but we know mm -hmm. guys like Rudy Giuliani, Mike Flynn and Lindsey Graham desperately tried to avoid testifying about Donald Trump's Georgia state election crimes. They ran the court and every court ordered them to testify. And now the jurors said, you know what? Some of the witnesses lied to us. The reason that's so important from this old prosecutor's perspective is now Fawny Willis might have leverage over witnesses who lied in the grand jury because potentially they've exposed themselves to perjury, to obstruction of justice, and to accessory after the fact. So I always warned my witnesses before I put them before the grand jury, if you lie, I will be your worst nightmare because I'll ask the jury to consider voting out criminal charges against you for those lies. So this could actually end up being a benefit to Fonnie Willis's investigation. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's very unusual to lie in front of a grand jury. Like, people know that that's a crime. And so it is, it's interesting, Charles Blow, that, you know, I've sat on a grand jury before. You, you, you're, you know, the witnesses are very, made very clear, you know, as Glenn said, it's a felony. You cannot lie in front of this grand jury. They're sworn in. Um, and so what do you make of the fact, I'm just put up this list. These are some of the people, uh, Glenn named some of them, but Mark Meadows is among them. John Eastman, Lindsey Graham, uh, Brad Raffensperger, Brian Kemp, um, Giuliani Flynn. I can't imagine Brian Kemp being willing to lie for Donald Trump. But what do you make of the notion that people, and some of them are lawyers, who might be willing to lie for Donald Trump? And risk go to prison. Well, you know, it is. It, it doesn't. It, it doesn't surprise me as much as it may be surprising you. I, you know, it, the question becomes whether or not they were lying to cover up something that they thought might be more incriminating for either him or mm. for someone else. That they may have been rolling the dice, right? And 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 may and hoping against hope that they would not get caught in doing so. You know, this this whole thing is incredibly fraught. Uh, for everyone involved, because, you know, it appears that crimes not only were committed, but that the, the special grand jury is going to suggest that some people be charged with those crimes. And that is 
really, really significant. You know, and I think that the fact that Fannie Willis basically said that she agreed with the judge's uh, take today and that she was not going to appeal the judge's decision means that her charging decisions will likely line up with what the grand jury was is suggesting. The big the big political danger for her was whether was was the prospect of having uh, a, a charging decisions that did not line up and then having to explain that politically. Mm. For instance, if the grand jury, having not subpoenaed, as best we know, Donald Trump, having not sat him down in that chair or at least requested to have him sit in that chair, what if they hypothetically uh, suggest that you charge other people and not him? And then finally, mm. what is based on her own investigation, says, no, I actually think that he should be charged as well. There would be a political problem or issue that you would have to explain to the public. It's not a legal issue, but it's a political problem of how are you going to charge more than the special grand jury requested that you do? I think that the fact that she's not complaining suggests that she's yeah. probably going to charge as the special grand jury has suggested. Interesting. Um, speaking of Trump, I mean, uh, let me just play this. This is this is not him. This is his attorney. My, his name is Tim, Timothy Parlatori, um, because there's so much that Trump has done at this point. It's hard to keep track. But this is on him taking classified documents. This is his explanation, the lawyer's explanation of why more a classified folder was found now newly at Mar-a-Lago. It was in the president's bedroom. Uh, he has one of those uh, landline telephones next to his bed, and it has a blue light on it, and it keeps him up at night. So he took the manila folder and he put it over it so that it would keep the light down so he could sleep at night. And it's just this folder. It says classified evening brief, evening summary on it. It is not a classification marking. It's not anything that is controlled in any way. There's nothing illegal about it. There's nothing in it. Glenn, I'm not a lawyer or a former prosecutor like you, but that's the dumbest thing I think I might have ever heard, <laughs> heard in my life. Did Trump, they found 48 more empty folders that contain classified documents at Trump's house. Last month, he said he had so many of those empty folders because he thought they were cool. He thought they were a cool keepsake. How are any of these people, <laughs> how are any of these people not in jail? <laughs> make it make sense to yeah, me, please. That, that's the, Glenn. The only reason they're not convicted of federal felonies is because no one has deigned to indict them and put a prosecutor in the well of a court arguing the overwhelming evidence that Donald Trump has committed any number of federal felonies. You know what, Joy? He's not going to end up being charged with having manila folders that said classified evening briefing. I read my kids a lot of, you know, bedtime stories that I never read, you know, good night, moon, good night, classified documents. <laughs> um, he will not be charged with those things. He will be charged with the classified documents, top secret and SCI documents that they had to wrestle away from him after he violated a grand jury subpoena. So this is his lawyer spouting out nonsense that is only persuading the gullible, it will never persuade a jury. Or he'll be charged with nothing and the people around him will be charged with stuff. That's, I mean, we'll see. Glenn Kirshner, Charles Will, thank you both very much. We'll see. Up next, uh, the Super Bowl is no stranger to controversy. So what did conservatives, what did conservatives find to freak out now this year? I'll give you three guesses. Back in a second. Last night's Super Bowl was in many ways a Black History Month celebration. It was a celebration of Black excellence. 
With two black starting quarterbacks, Philadelphia's Jalen Hurts and the game's winner, Patrick Mahomes of Kansas City, facing off in an historic first for the big game. And before kickoff, the incomparable Cheryl Lee Ralph performed Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Black National Anthem. Unsurprisingly, right-wingers had a complete meltdown over the inclusion of a rallying cry for liberty for black Americans. How dare you? Lauren Boebert preemptively complained about one national anthem, while Marjorie Taylor Greene whined about the wokeness of it all. (laughs) In a league where nearly 70% of the players are black, actually, they should be singing that song. But any hoops. Meanwhile, at a time when women's bodily autonomy is under siege, halftime performer Rihanna, a strong, empowered black woman, used her platform to break the Internet and announce her second pregnancy. But the night was also an occasion for the NFL to pat itself on the back for doing the bare minimum when it comes to promoting diversity and inclusion. Once again, prominently featuring calls to end racism, even as Kansas City fans brought a litany of racist Native American iconography in the face of calls from indigenous activists to abandon the imagery and the chops and all of that stuff. Then, of course, there were the ads, which, in my humble opinion, were really not that great this year. But two from a group called the called He Gets Us really stood out, telling viewers to be childlike and urging us to look past our differences with the tagline, Jesus loved the people we hate. But what those ads didn't tell you is who is behind the He Gets Us campaign. It's part of a $100 million campaign to help promote Christianity and build the brand of Jesus, according to its backers, because his his brand has really just never been built before. Most of its donors are anonymous, of course, but David Green, founder of Hobby Lobby, the craft store with a history of funding right-wing religious causes, is a donor. As Lieber News points out, He Gets Us is a subsidiary of the Servant Foundation, a Kansas nonprofit, adding that between 2018 and 2020, the Servant Foundation donated more than $50 million to the Alliance Defending Freedom, a group that has led fights against abortion and non-discrimination laws and is designated as an anti-LGBTQ hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The Alliance Defending Freedom drafted the Mississippi law at the heart of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. And they're currently behind a Texas lawsuit seeking to reverse the FDA's approval of the abortion pill, Mifepristone, and to ban the drug nationwide. In other words, it's not as apolitical as he gets us claims. And I think it is fair to say Jesus Christ wouldn't spend millions of dollars on television ads promoting his image. I mean, but who knows? Next year, if his brand is sufficiently promoted, maybe he could find a way to improve the officiating. Just saying. Up next, Mississippi lawmakers approve a new court system in which white elected officials will appoint judges and prosecutors in one of the blackest cities in America. In what some are comparing to the state's Jim Crow past. That's right after this short break. So we are in the middle of Black History Month and starting tonight and going forward on this show, we want to introduce you to some of the states of our disunion, states where Americans are struggling to exercise their right to vote, to make their way out of poverty and to live free of government control of their wombs. We will cover the states facing the hardest struggles for democracy, the ones banning books and curtailing the right to choose and passing draconian anti-trans laws. But we'll also show you some of the states that are winning, where our democracy is working. But tonight, we want to start with a state that unfortunately is still stuck in its white supremacist past, Mississippi, 
where a white supermajority in the heavily gerrymandered state house voted to create an entirely separate court system and expanded police force within the city of Jackson, the blackest city in America that would be appointed completely by white state officials. That means that the voters of Jackson, which is 80% black, do not get to elect the judges or prosecutors in this separate district, unlike what happens in every other part of the state. White officials currently hold all the statewide positions that would do the appointing, and no black official has ever held any of these positions. In fact, the last time a black Mississippian held statewide office was during Reconstruction. And the state, despite being one-third African-American, is gerrymandered to have exactly one black congressman, Representative and January 6th Committee Chairman Benny Thompson. Meanwhile, the Republican who introduced this draconian bill says it's because of the high crime rates and backlog of court cases in the county that contains Jackson, which did I mention is the state capital? Jackson's mayor has called the plan colonialist and racist and said it reminds him of apartheid. And joining me now is the mayor of Jackson, Chokwe Antar Lumumba. Um, And Mayor Lumumba, please explain how it can be possible that the capital um, of Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, is, I think, to your point, going to be governed under apartheid style. Well, I think that uh, to speak to it honestly, uh, I'm, I'm reflecting on the words of Coach Dennis Green, who once said that they are who we thought they were. Uh, you know, as we've been calling out these clearly racist policies, uh, that has been done uh, much to the chagrin of state leadership, uh, saying that we're giving Mississippi a black eye. And to be clear, uh, it is not our words that give Mississippi a black eye. It is the actions that they're taking, uh, actions that will not allow or disenfranchise uh, voters in Jackson, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, this this particular uh, law is fraught with constitutional violations, uh, equal protection. Uh, it is seeking to create a district which is the most densely white population populated area in the city of Jackson. Uh, in addition to uh, a police force or, or a militarized force uh, that does not have uh, direct uh, accountability to the residents. Uh, within the district that already exists, there have been numerous claims of, of uh, issues of, of police misconduct, that are not being challenged, that are not being followed up on. Uh, and so there's a multitude of concerns here. It sounds like 1980 era Pretoria. I mean, in, in 1890, Mississippi enacted a racist constitution that to strip uh, African-Americans of any rights and the right to vote because of the really you know, historic and heavy voting by former enslaved people to elect statewide officials and the lieutenant governor to really you know, make an incredible strides. How could it be that more than 100 years after the Civil War, Mississippi still is governed this way when it has the highest black population in the entire country, percentage-wise. Well, I I thank you for recounting that history, Joy, because uh, along with that history was a narrative that said that uh, it was in the slave or it was in black people's interest not to be burdened uh, with that heavy weight of having to select electoral leadership, Uh, much in the same way as they have created this district that they set to appoint the representative who created this legislation or introduced this legislation suggested that the reason that he thought that these judges should be appointed rather than elected is because we wanted, quote, uh, the best of the best, uh, which is to suggest that Jackson residents are not intelligent enough or, or aware of their, their needs enough in order to elect those, uh, those individuals for themselves. Uh, and, and so this has been a battle that we've been in uh, for, for some time. 
it is because they are allowed to bring Trojan horses, such as the Capitol Complex uh, District, which was initially introduced in 2017 as a suggested aid to infrastructure. Uh, at that time, myself, along with a coalition of people that called ourselves the Coalition of Economic Justice, opposed it because we saw what it was. Uh, but you did have some legislators uh, that looked like us who were in support. Uh, but I do want to be clear that what they were presented with uh, was not what we see today. They were presented with an opportunity to assist a, a community that is in much need of infrastructure support. And so we were, were forced to compete against our interests. Uh, you, 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 water, there's still a water crisis in Jackson. Federal funds have been pledged. It, it appears now that the, the Mississippi white legislators are trying to take over those funds and take them out of your hands and other elected uh, local Jackson officials' hands. This, as Brett Favre, is threatening to sue the people who pointed out that he was in possession of funds to build his daughter a, a volleyball complex that belonged to the impoverished people in the state of Mississippi. He was essentially in, 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 in a mode of taking from the poor. And now he's suing for his reputation back. It, it feels like everything is upside down in Jackson and in Mississippi. It, it feels that way because that's the truth. Um, and, and at a time where uh, the state is littered with um, questions of integrity, uh, where there's incompetence there, they charge communities like Jackson who have been devoid of resources of, of being uh, the ones that are incompetent. Uh, there has been a willful indifference uh, or a, a uh, intentional neglect around the issues that, that Jackson needs. Yeah. Uh, and this is part and parcel of the larger effort. And, and my guess is I'll bet you Tate Reeves and them are busy trying to pass laws, trying to outlaw history because you wouldn't want people to learn how we got here. Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba, thank you very much. That is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.